The Truth News Network. COVID, critical race, compliance mandates, and conflicting stories about it all. Mask, vaccine? No. The truth shall set you free. TNN, the Truth News Network, with your host, Dan Newman. Good morning, all of our fans, all of our friends from around the world, and uh, those that are in the continental U.S. with me. A special good morning. TNN Live is on the road today, broadcasting from Nashville, Tennessee. What are you in Nashville for, Dan? Well, for those of my friends that know me or people that know me through many years in radio, I'm not a big country music fan, but um, my nephew, Des Duran, you may remember him. Um, He was a finalist on The Voice. He's a great singer. And by the way, most people don't know this. He was a quarterback in high school. He was the Gatorade Player of the Year in Louisiana as a quarterback at Evangel Christian Academy in Shreveport. And he won a state championship. Um, He's a phenomenal singer. He went to Yale, and uh, then he left Yale to pursue his professional musical career. So what's happening in Nashville? He begins his show tonight, and it's it's a combination of uh, Frank Sinatra and Des Duran. Dominic Jones is also going to join him. She's a member of a unbelievable musical family in Christian music. Forever Jones is the name of the group. She's nominated, has been for multiple Grammy Awards, Dove Awards, and um, she is highly rewarded for a lot of her work. And she is out of the same school, Evangel Christian Academy, close friend, and also like one of our kids, as Des is, uh, I guess, unformally a nephew, just like Doe, nieces and nephews of the Dan and Marianne Newman family. All that being said, we're having a really good time here. A little bit upset about the outcome of the Super Bowl last night. Sat in a room filled with close friends and watched the game. And just had this sense, this feeling toward the end of the game that it didn't look really good for the Cincinnati Bengals. Now, let me put it in context for you. Um, For a long time, owned and operated a couple of Arena Football League teams. The last one was the New Orleans Voodoo out of New Orleans, Louisiana. I was chairman of the board of the executive committee of the Arena Football League and For many years, the Arena Football League provided game officials for the Arena Football League. Why would they do that? Well, it was training ground. They would tell people that wanted to make their way into the National Football League to be an official, you got to go through the Arena Football League. It's a training ground. So it worked out good for them, worked out good for us for a while. As dollars and cents of the expense of operating these teams, we had national television contracts. I mean, the players unionized. Everything price-wise went up. It became more and more critical for owners and team fans that we make sure whoever's calling the game as officials got it right. Well, I can't tell you how many times the last couple of years the league used the National Football League officials, how many times I saw Arena Football League games end on a tragic, miscalled decision by a football official in these games. Not an opinion on a call, but missing a call based upon a league rule. 
So I sat in Roger Goodell's office in um, Park Avenue in New York City. We went in to have a meeting with him, me and two other owners in the league. And uh, that day we pulled the plug and brought the officiating back in-house. Now, how does that have anything to do with the game last night, Dan? It really does because more and more, and it's sadly I say this, more and more it seems like game officials are making bigger impacts in bigger ways in professional sports today. Not just the National Football League, not even just the NBA. I'm talking about soccer, Major League Baseball, whatever professional sport it is, folks. There are people that feel like they are entitled to make game-changing decisions just because they have the power and authority to do that. If you watch the Super Bowl, if you watch the fourth quarter, you'll know the specific play I'm talking about. The Rams were driving, and they faced a must-first-down situation. And before the play even began, I made this statement to everybody sitting in the room. I said, folks, you watch this. If the Rams don't get a first down on this play, there will be a penalty called against the Cincinnati Bengals for either pass interference or pass holding, defensive holding. And I mean, 20 seconds later, that's exactly what happened. They got a first down and the rest is history. They scored. Now, does that mean that made the difference in the game? No, no, no. I'm not saying they changed the game outcome, the eventual outcome. I'm not saying that at all. I'm not accusing anybody of cheating, but what did happen, one official put his finger on the scale of equality on that one play, and it made a difference on that one play. Does this have anything to do with TNN Live and what we do? Yes, it does, folks. It's part of a culture that is creeping across our nation where people in every kind of position there is in authority, in leadership, political, and even otherwise, are getting so power hungry they feel like that they must make a difference in all the things that they have the position in which they can make decisions that change lives. And so they do it, not because it's necessary, not because these changes might be needed, simply because they can. Did you get that? People in power and authority are making decisions that change many very important aspects of all Americans' lives. And it's not just Americans. You're going to hear a little bit more about this in a few minutes. It's for people all over the world. Big government, top down. If you want to call it authoritarian, yeah, let's call it authoritarian. If you are talking about or referencing a communist country, yeah, you can call it totalitarianism. What it is, folks, is the antithesis of what our nation the United States of America, was established to be, which is a country that guarantees equality, not equity, equality, freedom and justice for all, and with a justice system that in every case functions this way, innocent until proven guilty, which is the antithesis to these other two types of government I referenced, authoritarianism and totalitarianism. So it does apply. Now, did that weigh in on the finality of the game? No, it didn't. You can point to many other plays in the game 
that Cincinnati could have completed a pass or made a good block that didn't. There are a lot of places you can place blame, but I can tell you this, that one play, if I felt in my spirit it was going to happen, and I'm not involved in any way with the National Football League, I'm not even involved in the Arena Football League anymore, but my, my point is, if I felt that way and I saw it as a possibility, there are a lot of people out there that feel the same way that I do. And in this particular case, that's not a good thing. It's not a good thing that it happened. But it's not a good thing that it happens in so many different parts of our lives that we always have that behind us saying, this might happen. And that's not a good thing. Let me tell you what, folks. While you are having a wonderful weekend, I hope, there was a lot of stuff happening around the world that isn't and wasn't wonderful. Have you kept up with this thing happening up on the border of Canada and the U.S.? Windsor, Canada, right across um, from Detroit, Michigan. It's amazing. And to be quite honest with you, our media here, our mainstream media, they're really not digging into the heart of that matter. Why would they not do that? Because it's, it's a scandal. It's a really big deal, right? You've got hundreds of these truckers in Canada that they're not working. They've, they've killed their trucks. They're blockading. Most of these truckers are vaccinated. What are they protesting? What are they doing this lockdown about? Because the government of Canada is expressing power, far too much power, and actually some power that most Canadians feel like the government doesn't have. Now, you got to remember this. Their government's a little bit different than ours. They, they are technically a socialist nation where the governments do have the people have given up a little more power than people in representative republic oh this is the only representative republic ours well yeah it's going to be different there but what we're seeing is part of this thing i just told you about and i illustrated it with an nfl official weighing in exercising power not because it's necessary not because it should be done but because they can. That's going on there. Oh, a blockbuster story over the weekend. John Durham, special attorney, he's been investigating the origins of the Russia collusion happenings and everything to go with it, looking into the details of the Mueller investigation, interviewing people, finding out what the FBI knew, what they didn't know, what they did, what they didn't do, and all of the whys. It's been dragging on now for a couple of years. But there's news out there, folks, that it really did happen. It really did happen. So let's start kind of at the surface of this, and then we're going to dig right in. Also, we're two years into our pandemic, COVID-19, and a lot of things haven't changed. Some have, but a lot of things haven't. What hasn't changed that's not good. We're going to weigh into the details of that, folks. So you need to stick around today. We have a lot to dig into. We're going to be back here in Nashville tomorrow for our show. And uh, then we're going to be back in our Louisiana headquarters for the rest of the week. I hope you are doing really good things for your spouse or your Valentine today, guys and girls that are listening. 
It's a very special day, Valentine's Day. It's really special for me. More special than probably for most of you. Why is that, Dan? 47 years ago today, Marianne and I got married. Oh my gosh, you you married on Valentine's Day? You don't know how often I hear somebody say that. Yeah, we did. And usually a guy, if he asks that when I answer, he says, oh yeah, I, I, I see it now. Uh, you just do one present instead of two. <laughs> Regular normal Valentine's Day, you're going to gift your, your loved one. But on an anniversary, really big deal, 47 folks, 47 is a long time to do anything. But I have a very special Valentine. She, um, she has been an amazing wife, a phenomenal mother, and she is Nani of the world. That's what our six grandchildren call her, Nani, and I'm Poppy. They love and adore her. We're blessed that all of our, all of our grandkids live right in the neighborhood. Right, well, not the neighborhood, but in the city in which we live in northwest Louisiana. So we're with them all the time. We have three amazing children and uh, great son-in-law, great daughter-in-law. I'll tell you, we're blessed in every way. So Marianne, kudos to you. I'm pretty positive she's downstairs in the lobby of the hotel having some coffee this morning, but I do know this, she's listening in. I love you, babe. Thank you for being my Valentine for all these years. I'm blessed. I'm blessed. Well, let's start right at the top. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but it's very important that we catch you up. This all began, this Durham thing, it began with some filings from John Durham late last week after 5 o'clock on Friday, which is when if somebody doesn't want to make a big stink in media and there's a big story to come out, they wait They wait till after the news cycle shuts down late Friday afternoon. So I guess that's why Durham dropped this along late Friday. His filings alleged the Hillary Clinton campaign was working to establish a what is being called a narrative linking the Trump campaign to a Russian bank in what they say an alleged gambit, one expert said, was an effort to infiltrate Trump servers to that end. Now, the servers they're talking about, and this is why it really is so bad. It wasn't just the servers in the Donald Trump campaign. They infiltrated the servers in Trump Tower And then, folks, the big bad part, they did so after Donald Trump became president. They hacked the servers in the White House. That's a bombshell allegation. And Durham's got the facts and the evidence that show that. This adds another layer to the densely multifaceted Durham investigation into the origins of the beginning of that Trump-Russia conspiracy theory, one that continued for a long time, even after Trump left office. And folks, it's still going on today. We're talking about the Russia collusion story six years later. So this latest filing from Durham involves a federal false statement charge brought against that lawyer, Michael Sussman. It had already been brought against him, but we didn't know any of the details. Who's Michael Sussman? He's a former D.C. lawyer for the Clinton campaign and that infamous law firm Perkins Coy. Sussman had been questioned by the FBI prior to the election. 
the 2016 election, as to whether he was working for a client when he brought allegations to the FBI. Remember, he's the one that took the FBI collusion thing. He took it to him. And it was about Trump's links to the major private Russian financial institution, a bank, Alpha Bank. Sussman denied he was working for anybody, he said, something federal prosecutors now have verified. He lied. In September last year, Durham announced that a federal grand jury had returned an indictment in D.C., in the District of Columbia, in federal court there, charging Sussman with making a false statement to the FBI. Listen to when this was, September 19th, 2016, month and a half before the election. And it was about alleged communications between the Trump Organization and Alpha Bank in Russia. So Durham argues in this latest drop that prior to the FBI's questioning, Sussman had assembled and conveyed the allegations to the FBI on behalf of at least two specific clients. Well, who were his clients? Now remember, he's a member of Perkins Coy, this big D.C. law firm that represents everybody who's Democrat that has a lot of money. When they're going to get in trouble, they go to Perkins Coy. So who are these two specific clients? Well, don't know the names, but we know who they are tagged as being in this Durham drop, a technology executive, which in the findings they call Tech Executive One, at a U.S.-based internet company, and the Clinton campaign. Durham says that Sussman repeatedly billed the Clinton campaign for his work on the Russia Bank One allegations. So that was a red flag, and that meant Durham was going to dig in, which he did. His filings further state that Sussman and the tech executive in question had met and communicated with another law partner who was serving as general counsel to guess who? The Clinton campaign. And that man, we found out, I guess within the last 60 days, was Mark Elias, another Clinton campaign lawyer. In connection with all this, tech executive one, remember that tech company, they're the ones that actually were the hackers exploited his access to non-public and or proprietary internet data. That's in the filing. Tech Executive One enlisted the assistance of researchers at a U.S.-based university who were receiving and analyzing large amounts of internet data in connection with a pending federal government cybersecurity research contract. So Tech Executive One, he was tasked to get these researchers to mine internet data to establish, create, this is a big deal, folks, an inference and narrative tying Trump to Russia. In doing that, Tech Executive One indicated he was seeking to please certain VIPs referring to individuals at law firm one, Penton Coy, and the Clinton campaign. So who would be the VIPs at the Clinton campaign? Well, obviously, VIP number one would be Hillary Clinton. Bill, he may not be in the top two or three, but he's in the top five. 
You know he was included in this. Cash Patel, you've heard the name, a former aide to California GOP Representative Devin Nunes, who has worked in Congress to reveal the origins of the Trump-Russia conspiracy theory, in an interview with Fox, stated that the filing definitely shows that the Hillary Clinton campaign directly funded and ordered its lawyers, <laughs> Perkins Coy, ordered them to pay for and to orchestrate a criminal enterprise to fabricate a connection between Trump and Russia. Quote, per Durham, this arrangement was put in motion in July of 2016, three months before the election, meaning the Hillary Clinton campaign and her lawyers masterminded what is going to be when it rolls out. We felt like it would be, but it's going to be the most intricate and coordinated conspiracy against Donald Trump when he was not just a candidate, but after he was elected and moved into the White House, while at the same time perpetuating the bogus Steele dossier hoax. Patel, Cash Patel, argued further that the lawyer in questions were working to infiltrate servers at both Trump Tower and the White House. So as you can imagine, this just lit the world up over the weekend. News went crazy, crazy, crazy about it. One representative, Mike Turner, yesterday morning, he was on Fox News Today with Maria Bartiromo. And I want you to listen to this back and forth. He talks about the implications of this. And Maria, you're going to hear this. This all really the details. It dropped late Friday, but digging in to get all the behind information to tie those pieces together. It took a little bit to do it. Her staff at Fox Business, they did just that. Listen to her talking to Representative Mike Turner about the implications of all this. Look, I think it's pretty clear that the Democrats have put America in a very bad spot, a vulnerable position. And now we have this breaking news this morning, something our viewers were well aware of, that Hillary Clinton made up a story to take down her political operative, Donald Trump. Back in 2016, Democrat-paid operatives illegally hacked their political opponents' communications during a presidential campaign and then did it again to a sitting president. Your reaction to what we learned this morning about well, this, the this, this is, uh, yes. Russia hoax lie? Well, this is absolutely uh, outrageous. And, and, and when you look at uh, Durham's pleadings in the Michael Sussman case, you know he is basically laying out a case of where a number of laws were, were, have been broken by the Clinton campaign and where people are being protected by Sussman's lawyers. In fact, the pleading is about trying to convince Michael Sussman and the court that he's not being well served by his own lawyers because they're, in fact, protecting the Clinton campaign and others uh, in, in the allegations of, of, uh, of their bias. Uh, so the pleading set out, though, as you just indicated, that uh, Durham has in, in evidence uh, of, a, uh, of compromising of uh, computer systems in an attempt to try to basically frame the president of the United States as having uh, Russia ties. Now, I think that this is going to lead in the end to Brennan, Clapper and Comey. I think that what we see is not just, you know, political shenanigans or opposition research that you would see in the normal, um, you know, campaigns where people are, are trying to find information out about their opponents. This is where government is being used, where information that's political opposition research that is false is being made up 
is trying to be placed into um, the government, into the FBI, into to undertake criminal investigations that are absolutely false. Um, this is yeah. a, a whole new level of corruption and is of grave concern. Yeah, and we want to know when exactly Jim Comey and Clapper uh, and Brennan started working with the Hillary Clinton campaign to take down her adversary. But frankly, these actions are characteristic of a third world dictatorship, not a democracy. So my question to you is, Adam Schiff, your colleague on the left, the Democrats have been in charge of the House since 2018. They not only have ignored, but actually denied denied the intelligence confirming that Hillary Clinton created the Russia hoax and uh, used the Obama-Biden administration to spy on Trump. Will you, if you become chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, if the GOP takes the majority in November, will you hold hearings to finally reveal the truth? What will you do? Absolutely. We have to get to the truth. I mean, this is a threat to our democracy itself. It doesn't matter really which political campaign this is or which political party this is. This is so wrong. And, and allegations of such level of illegal activity that goes directly to you know, our faith in our own government, that the truth must be found. Durham is doing a great job. I appreciate that he's got this in, in the court system and is trying to bring this to light. But we have to to get to the bottom of this. We have to find the answers. So this never happens again. So we never have uh, Americans having to distrust their own government because of the politicalization of the FBI, of our intelligence community. Uh, this is very wrong. This is very, very much a danger. And it doesn't matter which side of the, the aisle this is. Everyone should be outraged and everyone should want to get to the bottom of this. But are you going to make sure to get to the bottom of it? Congressman, I've got to tell you, people are sick and tired of things like this happening with absolutely no accountability. We know that the FBI knew that the dossier was a bunch of bunk. We know that because there was a three-day interview back in January of 2017 where the FBI interviewed Denshenko, the subsource of the dossier, and he said, oh, no, we made it up. We embellished it. It was friends having beers. We were just joking around. And yet that dossier was used as, an, a, 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 as a part of a, an actual official intelligence report. The media ran with it. When will we see accountability? Right. And I think that's what's so important about what Durham is doing, because, you know, as, as you look and we all do for accountability, this is a criminal case that he's brought in federal court. Uh, Durham is laying out the information of his very exhaustive and I believe thorough investigation. We will certainly use every tool that we have in the Intelligence Committee, and I think certainly Jim Jordan on the Judici Judiciary Committee and others will make certain that we use every aspect of congressional power to get to the bottom of this. But there is accountability as these criminal cases move forward. Uh, Durham's getting to the bottom of this. He's bringing forth allegations, although very troubling, are, are a result of his investigation. And they're in criminal court. And that's where accountability can be found. Accountability. We have to get accountability. Now, let me just paint a picture for you. You just heard um, Representative Turner, Mike Turner. I mean, everything he said was right on, spot on. These are things that must happen. These are things that we have to make happen just because this is the United States of America. And unless we want to live in a banana republic where everything goes and there's no accountability for any law breaking whatsoever, if we want to have a real government, real representatives of the people, we the people have got to make sure this kind of stuff doesn't happen. Now, let me just say this. Corruption 
political corruption does not have an R or a D in front of it. It is pure in itself. It's pure evil. And where there are men and women who make choices about doing good or not doing good, doing evil or not doing evil, you're never going to have a totally clean slate in politics. Never. I don't care how righteous a picture is painted of people from any particular political party. There is graft and corruption all the way around. So what does that have to do with this conversation? Here's the deal. Here's what has to happen, folks. Somebody has got to be held accountable. Nobody has been held accountable for this corruption that we knew all along was going on all the way down to lying in federal court and lying before Congress under oath, which both are federal crimes. James Comey, people that worked under him in the FBI, in sworn testimony committed felony after felony after felony. That famous Clinton server that was not classified by the Department of Justice, which every server that's used for government business has to be. And there are penalties in federal law for breaking that and transmitting unclassified information over telephones, hard copy, emails. Hillary Clinton and her staff did that the entire time she was Secretary of State. And did you know, then-President Barack Obama communicated to and from Hillary Clinton on that same server. He had a Gmail account that we are told people in his own administration didn't know that he had. And to make that even worse, every one of those emails that he sent, every one of the response emails that Hillary sent or anybody else in her Secretary of State office that went on that computer, went to the president on that Gmail account, every single one is a felony violation of federal law. We've known that for a long time. And to make that worse, when the FBI was investigating that, former FBI Director James Comey, he told us they found that every every communication that was transmitted to or from using that server, that every one of those messages was downloaded overseas. They were intercepted, and somebody somewhere, he knows, he didn't tell us, that's one that needs to be found out where it went. But think about all of the information. Think about conversations that happened between any president and any member of that president's cabinet, especially the Secretary of State. And somebody probably, I think I can narrow where those emails went to pretty easily. It would have to be Russia or China. And oh my gosh, you know, picking whichever one it would be of those two is just the lesser of two evils But going anywhere, breaking the law in any way, is incorrigible, especially among the top tiers of government here in the United States. We've just seen the tip of this, folks, and it's going to, I promise you, it's going to grow and get worse and worse and worse. 
We're not going to spend the rest of the day on this. There are so many other things that we need to talk about. We talked about the Super Bowl. We talked about the Durham investigation and the latest there. What else do we have to talk about? Well, there's a lot of stuff going on. It's not looking good over there in Eastern Europe. The conflation that is pending between Vladimir Putin's Russian armies and those in Ukraine and our involvement. Yeah, we have involvement. And we're getting mixed messages from this administration about a lot of things. But in this case, folks, what's happening in Ukraine, I talked over the weekend, had a very lengthy conversation with one of the wealthiest men in the world. I'm not going to give you his name, um, but he is a multi-billionaire and he's connected. He's from Asia, doesn't live in Asia any longer. But he has a keen affinity, keen affinity to things in the political landscape of the world, not just for financial reasons, but for political and social reasons, what and how it impacts people around the world, including us here. He had some interesting things to say about what's going on in Ukraine and Russia as it pertains to the United States and also NATO. You're not going to believe what I was told, and this is from a very, very credible source. We've got that. We got a whole bunch more right after this. Oh, you're going to hear from people that uh, you probably hadn't heard from in a while, like Paul Harvey. Well, no, I haven't heard from him in a while. He's been dead for a good time. Yeah, but he left us some great witticisms. I've got something for you that was many, 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 many years old when he died. But What you're going to hear from him pertains more to today than it did when he gave it on ABC News back in the 60s. A bunch more ahead. Back in a moment. I can't believe it. I've been playing four on four with a barbershop quartet. Pass the ball, pass the rock. We're open, just pass the ball. Nah, I can't believe how easy it was to save hundreds of dollars on my car insurance with Geico. Yeah. Believe it. Geico could save you 15% or more on car insurance. For more unbelievable Geico videos, give subscribe a click. Summer seems even brighter when you've been inside a while. It's time to drive again with Honda, KVB.com's 2020 Best Value Brand. You could get a great deal on the 2020 Passport or 2020 Pilot, with financing as low as 0.9% APR on select models. Visit the Honda Summer Clearance Event today. For well-qualified buyers, see dealer for financing details based on 2020 brand immatures from Kelly Blue Book. Visit KBB.com for more information. The stages may be bare, but the show goes on with the iHeartRadio Broadway Saturday Matinee. Every week, we play an entire cast album and give you behind-the-scenes stories from the show's stars. This Saturday, Moulin Rouge. Welcome to the Moulin Rouge! This is Danny Burstein from Moulin Rouge the Musical, and you're listening to iHeartRadio Broadway. The iHeartRadio Broadway Saturday Matinee. Today at 2 at iHeartRadioBroadway.com. Driven by Mercedes-AMG. Driving performance. Here's to choice. To making your voice be heard. To getting exactly what you want. Especially when you eat. At Subway restaurants, you choose your freshly baked bread. Meats cheese, and veggies to make a sub that's just right for you. 
come in and create yours today. Subway, eat fresh. Tired of your allies falling to the pressure of the big lie? Come take a breath with the truth. TNN, the Truth News Network. Yeah, the big lie. Somebody stole that on the Democrat side, and they labeled January 6th the quote-unquote insurrection as the big lie, but it was a big lie in D.C., a bunch of them, way before that happened. So you probably, just like me, were wondering, well, with all this latest stuff coming out, Durham's investigation putting some real heavy, meaty, bad information out there, and it, of course, exonerates if it's all true and factual and plays out like it I got to say at this particular point, 99 and 9 tenths percent sure is going to be verified in the whole. To that regard, how did Trump respond? Well, I don't think anybody questions that the former president did respond. Here's what he said, and this is in a release, so somebody else obviously wrote it. I'd love to hear him respond personally, and maybe we will. Quote, the latest pleading from special counsel Robert Durham provides indisputable evidence that my campaign and presidency were spied on by operatives paid by the Hillary Clinton campaign in an effort to develop a completely fabricated connection to Russia. This is a scandal far greater in scope and magnitude than Watergate, and those who were involved in and knew about this spying operation should be subject to criminal prosecution. In a stronger period of time in our country, this crime would have been punishable by death. In addition, reparations should be paid to those in our country who have been damaged by this. Now, if you'll remember, he he referenced Watergate there. What was Watergate? Well, Richard Nixon was president. Some of then-President Nixon's associates were caught breaking into the offices of the Democratic National Committee during the 1972 presidential campaign. In this case, the alleged spying continued beyond the campaign and into Trump's presidency. And Watergate resulted with uh, Richard Nixon having to resign as president. So, I mean, folks, there's a great comparison there and a lot more to come with that. But we just want to move on because there is much more to move on about. Before we do that, let me just point something out. You know who Jake Sullivan is. He's Biden's national security advisor in the White House. Um, This probably won't surprise you. He obviously is involved heavily in everything to do with this president's administration. But it's not his first rodeo. We talked about Hillary Clinton. Guess who was running herd on pretty much everything at Hillary Clinton's tenure as Secretary of State? Jake Sullivan. He was right in the middle of all of this. Yeah, he was, folks. Sullivan released an email just days before the 2016 election as Hillary's team was trying to tie Trump to Russia. You want to hear what it said? Well, Sullivan was also involved in emails with Obama's Deputy National Secretary Advisor, Ben Rhodes, laughing about how they were lying to the media. Let me read this. It's actually on Twitter, so you can get it. It's a statement from Jake Sullivan. In response to a new report from Slate, 
showing that the Trump Organization has a secret server registered to Trump Tower that has been covertly communicating with Russia, Hillary for America senior policy advisor Jake Sullivan released the following statement. This could be the most direct link yet between Donald Trump and Moscow. Computer scientists have apparently uncovered a covert server linking the Trump Organization to a Russia bank. This secret hotline may be the key to unlocking the mystery of Trump's ties to Russia. It certainly seems the Trump Organization felt it had something to hide, given that it apparently took steps to conceal the link when it was discovered by journalists. This line of communication may help explain Trump's bizarre adoration of Vladimir Putin and endorsement of so many pro-Kremlin positions throughout this campaign. It raised an even more troubling questions in light of Russia's masterminding of hacking efforts that are clearly intended to hurt Hillary Clinton's campaign. We can only assume that federal authorities will now explore the direct connection between Trump and Russia as part of their existing probe into Russia's meddling in our election. It's, it's just unfathomable that we're getting all these things. And, I mean, you heard the detail of that statement put out by Jake Sullivan. Folks, he was at the top of the Hillary Clinton campaign. When Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State, he was her number two man. When the Benghazi stuff happened, you know where those guys were killed and the, uh, our ambassador and three other Secret Service people were killed? That whole debacle, Jake Sullivan was the operational entity supervising that for Hillary Clinton as Secretary of State. How many other fingers are going to get pointed to how many other people? You can bet we're just getting started with facts. What else is there to talk about today? What do we need to know about? Well, what about those Canadian truckers and what they're going through? Boy, this story changes almost minute by minute. Over the weekend, police moved in to clear and arrest the remaining protesters during the border bridge early Sunday trying to end that demonstration against Canadian COVID restrictions that has hurt their economy, not just theirs, but ours too, even as they held back from a crackdown on a larger protest in the capital, Ottawa. Local and national police formed a joint command center in Ottawa where protests have paralyzed the downtown area. Infuriated residents, they're all fed up with the cops in action on this whole thing, and they've turned up the pressure on Prime Minister Justin Trudeau to get something done. And those protests have spread across the country. And folks, Canada's a big country. I mean, from side to side, top to bottom. Similar convoys across the pond in France, in New Zealand, and the Netherlands. Our Department of Homeland Security warned that truck convoys may be in the works here in the United States. So Windsor, Windsor's right across the Canadian border from Detroit, Michigan. Windsor cops yesterday said arrests were being made, vehicles were being towed just after dawn near the Ambassador Bridge that links Detroit and Windsor, Ontario. That's the busiest busiest border crossing to the U.S., with the exception of maybe the southern border down south, 
We don't know how busy it is because we don't get accurate numbers. Only two pickup trucks and less than a dozen protesters blocked the road to the bridge before the cops moved in. Afterward, police barricades remained. It was not clear when the bridge might be open. And that stuff just keeps going on and on and on. So when this all began, some very charitable, good-hearted, free Canadians and even people in the United States, they wanted to help these truckers out. So a GoFundMe account was created. And so it was created at TD Bank in Canada. Well, guess what happened? You knew it probably would. Toronto Dominion, which is TD Bank, they froze two bank accounts one of which included $1.1 million paid into the account destined to support those truckers doing the protesting. The decision to freeze the money before distributing it to the anti-vaccine mandate protesters was confirmed by a spokesperson for the bank. The moon cave after TD applied to the Ontario Superior Court of Justice late last week about taking that money sent through bank transfers and GoFundMe and giving them to the intended recipients or returning them to the donors who had requested refunds but whose entitlement to a refund cannot be determined by the bank. That seems like a logical question. Well, Reuters yesterday reported one bank account got $1 million Canadian dollars through GoFundMe. The rest was sent to a second account through a bunch of different bank transfers. The spokesperson said TDC, uh, TD is unsure of where that GoFundMe money came from. Senator Ted Cruz here asked the Federal Trade Commission, our Federal Trade Commission, to launch an investigation into GoFundMe and its actions. In an email to Reuters, Keith Wilson, an attorney for the convoy, said TD Bank has been put on notice their actions are improper and at least disappointing. GoFundMe faced immense criticism earlier after the company decided to pause the fundraising page for the convoy after it went over $10 million. Can you believe that? Canadian American citizens put $10 million in a GoFundMe page to help these truckers out. It's pretty significant. A lawyer for the Freedom Convoy sent an email outlining TD Bank has been put on notice that the trucker, the Freedom Convoy truckers are thinking, considering about litigation against the bank. That's not going to stop anytime soon. But of course, in the middle of all of this, you would think that uh, the guy at the top, Justin Trudeau, I mean, he is the boss of Canada, all of Canada, that he could step in and do something. So Justin finds himself in a similar situation as does our president, Joe Biden on a lot of things, but this one especially because it is sucking all the news time out of news in Canada. And everybody up, it's polarizing their entire nation. You are either, if you're Canadian, you're either in the tank for the totalitarian lockdowns and grabbing money and all this stuff that Trudeau is orchestrating himself, telling the bankers what to do. We got to stop all this stuff. Or you're 180 degrees away from that. You're supporting these truckers. When you boil down, all the way back when Martin Luther King Jr. 
was leading the fight in the U.S. for civil rights. If you go back that far and compare the two, the reason Martin Luther King Jr. was right about his stance for civil rights, it's because he was right, Martin Luther King Jr. And by right, we're talking about morally right, not legally right, but morally right. There's a comparison here. So if you look back at some of the arguments that Martin Luther King Jr. made, all we want is to be treated like everyone else and to be judged by our character, not our skin color. Now, not to take anything away from MLK's genius and his courage, but he'd not been morally right. His cause would have failed. But he succeeded. Why? Because even the most ignorant bigot understands Judging someone by something as meaningless as skin color is not only blatantly immoral, I mean, you can't even explain it. It defies reason. There's no way around that truth. What King did was show the world just how far Democrats in the segregated South were willing to go to defend their immoral laws that violated basic human rights when it comes to dealing with African Americans. King deliberately pushed the issue to where midnight terror campaigns could no longer enforce it, what they were doing. You're going to throw me in prison for sitting in the front of a bus? You're not going to arrest the guy who assaulted my sister for sitting at a lunch counter? You're going to unleash fire hoses, dogs, and billy clubs on women and children? Those were things he said in his speeches. There was a psychological reason. There was something behind it. It was brilliant. How far are you willing to go to enforce an unjust law? Oh, and Mr. and Mrs. America, I'm going to make you watch and dare you to continue to remain immorally silent. That's the kind of message and the type of messaging that Martin Luther King Jr. brought up when he was fighting for civil rights for everybody, no matter skin color. King studied Gandhi. You remember him? Gandhi, Mahatma Gandhi, basically did the same thing for the people in India. So how does this fit into the conversation about Justin Trudeau in Canada? Well, Justin Trudeau, he, he, he's totally walked away from the moral immorality of what his government is doing so far. How far is he willing to go to enforce unjust laws in Canada that discriminate and violate Canadian human rights? That's the question this Freedom Convoy is screaming into the face of the Prime Minister every day, and he doesn't like it. It makes him look bad. It makes him be exposed for a lot of what he is and who he is, and not just the things that he says. By any measure... Trudeau's vaccine mandates are indefensible. Trudeau's dehumanizing rhetoric that he's spewing now against the unvaxxed or those who support the unvaxxed and oppose the mandates in Canada, his stance is monstrous. His willingness to practice open segregation against people over personal medical choices is tyrannical. What Democrat, you remember Governor George Wallace of Alabama? He was the big leader of the segregationist in the South. What's a Democrat, by the way? 
George Wallace was to the civil rights movement. Justin Trudeau is the same thing to the freedom convoy in Canada. You can't split hair, folks. If you look at it, the facts are out there, and you draw conclusions based on the facts. If it fits in this scenario, it's going to fit equally in this exact same scenario somewhere else. The difference is we're not talking about skin color. We're talking about the type of people we are when it comes to our own medical treatment. Trudeau is the villain in this fighting an unjust cause. That's exactly what's going on. This one isn't going away. I mean, there's a lot of stuff. (laughs) There's a lot of stuff out there that's not going to go away that is dominating our news in every area. I mean, we case in point, listen to what we've talked about today. Russia collusion. Trump-Russia collusion. That argument's six years old already. And we're just now finally getting facts out there that prove there wasn't Russia collusion between Donald Trump, anybody in his campaign, and Russia. But there certainly was in the Hillary Clinton campaign. If you're a frequent reader of truthnewsnet.org, stories we publish there, or if you're a frequent listener to TNN Live, you've heard me reference this in a way of comparison. In politics in the United States, especially when it comes to the political antagonist in the Democrat Party, we have learned when in mass unison, Leaders in the Democrat Party, leaders in a Democrat administration, when they start screaming and hollering, doing the same hollering and screaming as others just like them, and it's all pointed at somebody on the other side of the political aisle, you can bet when they're pointing fingers, there should be fingers pointing right back at them because almost always, almost without exception, when they accuse somebody, those on the left accuse somebody on the right of doing something evil. They're doing it themselves or they've done it themselves in the past or they're planning to do the same thing and they're deflecting or trying to the attention to their own wrongdoing. You remember all the crazy pushback that we heard at the beginning of the Russia collusion story. I mean, CNN, MSNBC, New York Times, Washington Post, they 24-7 were laughing. How could, you know, you can't, you can't even deny Trump was in the tank with Vladimir Putin. It was Hillary. Powerful, insightful, truthful. TNN, the Truth News Network. American ladders and scaffolds deal with the experts. Scaffolding rental and setup, installation of truck racks, Lear truck caps, tonneau covers, and van shelving, fall protection. Ladder and scaffold training and inspections, little giant ladders, custom access ladders and guardrails for commercial buildings. American Ladders and Scaffolds, delivery everywhere, every day. American Ladders and Scaffolds, we take you higher, we take you higher. The I'm crazy hungry, so she's got to be too. Slide through the Mickey D's drive through to get a Big Mac. Right after I order her quarter pounder with cheese, because I don't know everything, but I do know what my girl's feeling hangry meal. 
get it at McDonald's when you buy one of your faves, like the Big Mac, quarter pounded with cheese, 10-piece chicken McNuggets, or filet of fish, and get another for just a dollar. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Prices and participation may vary. Valid on item of equal or lesser value. When your cable company keeps you on hold, you get angry. When you get angry, you go blow off steam. When you go blow off steam, accidents happen. When accidents happen, you get an eye patch. When you get an eye patch, people think you're tough. When people think you're tough, people want to see how tough. And when people want to see how tough, you wake up in a roadside ditch. Don't wake up in a roadside ditch. Get rid of cable and upgrade to DirecTV. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Relaxing, unclenching, finding the real truth. TNN. And again, your host, Dan Newman. Did you hear that a bunch of military leaders, when I say military leaders, I'm talking about really big at the top of our military leaders, have reached out and they have blasted Joe Biden and his administration for the pullout of Afghanistan and everything to go along with it. They actually, in writing, a bunch of military leaders, I'm talking about not uh, regular grunts, I'm talking about people at the top, not the guys in the Pentagon, not the Secretary of Defense, not General Mark Milley, but everyday working in the trenches military leaders have blasted Joe Biden for how the pullout of Afghanistan was happening and said publicly in all of this, they released it over the weekend, they said that in consultation directly with the president, they advised him not to do it the way that he did it. And over the weekend, folks, guess what the president did? He called them all, called them all liars. Now, we're going to let you in just a moment hear the president, but I wanted you to listen in to CNN's Jake Tapper and how he uh, explained what happened with Joe Biden. It's just about 30 seconds, but I want you to listen to Jake's voice. He was PO'd with the president. It's difficult to overstate how insulting Biden's sweeping rejection is to so many service members and veterans. Given the full content of the 2,000 pages of documents in this U.S. Army investigation, which CNN has also obtained, many accounts are from troops who were on the ground at the gates near the canal around the airport. Non-commissioned officers, junior officers, Joes, people with little political motivation to lie, and heavy legal and moral obligation to tell the truth in sworn statements. He was hacked off in that. So I'm sure you're probably saying, so what exactly did the president say? I mean, you heard, you know, a multi-hundreds of pages in that report. It wasn't something they just got together and said, hey, we want to say this. We want to push back and deflect the blame for what happened away from us. We messed up, but we want everybody to think it was the president. It was a literal report with evidence step-by-step that showed they had advised military leaders, army leaders especially, had advised the president how to pull out of Afghanistan and how not to. Here's the president himself talking about it this weekend. 
On the subject of American citizens, I have to draw your attention to that Army report, an investigative report that's come out about the lead-up to the withdrawal from Afghanistan. It, it interviewed many military officials and officers who said the administration ignored the handwriting on the wall. Uh, another described trying to get folks in the embassy ready to evacuate, encountering uh, you know, people who are in, essentially in denial of, of this situation. Does any of that ring true to you? No. No, that's not what I was told. That you were told that the U.S. administration officials were prepared, they knew it was time to get out? No, what I was told, no one told me that, look, there was no good time to get out. But if we had not gotten out, they acknowledged that we would have had to put a hell of a lot more troops back in. It wasn't just 2,000, 4,000. We would have to significantly increase the number of troops, and we were back in this, this war of attrition. And, it, and there was no way we were ever going to unite Ukraine. I mean, excuse me, Iraq, Afghanistan. No way that was going to happen. And so this is a much wiser thing to do. I just want to clarify, are you rejecting the conclusions or the, the accounts that are in this Army report? Yes, I am. So they're not, not true? I'm rejecting them. Ukraine. I mean, excuse me, Iraq. He couldn't even remember where he was pulling military troops out of. Ukraine, Iraq. He couldn't even remember Afghanistan. But yet, of course, he remembers exactly what those military leaders told him. He didn't tell us what they told him. But the details that he was confronted with, he said no. No, nobody told me that. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but folks, we've got a president right now that faces some tremendous, I don't even think it's fair to say challenges, some tremendous and very important decisions that must be made day to day, hour to hour. And he's not capable of making those decisions and getting us really credible answers that contain solutions of what we should do. Whoever sits in that Oval Office in 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue is the commander-in-chief of the United States military. That means somebody that has got to be able to lead the leaders, lead the leaders, yet alone the men and women in the trenches who are putting their lives literally in danger by volunteering to go out and defend us and take care of us and to keep the nation safe and all of our allies the same way. We're facing some really hard decisions as Americans. Some of them we can't even influence with a direct decision. That's the scariest thing of all to me. I mean, you sit and watch us deteriorate so quickly. Who would have thought that in less than a year our economy could be destroyed by one person, by policies and decisions that were made by that one person. And I, I mean, we, we look at his policies and the way he's handled COVID-19, vaccines, mandates, all of the different types of mandates. There's no leadership coming from this president on any of that. And we're looking down the barrel of Vladimir Putin and Russian soldiers on the border of Russia and Ukraine and we've got troops over there? Is he trustworthy? He's also got the nuclear suitcase, briefcase. 
He has the nuclear launch codes. <laughs> that is horrifying. Nobody likes to think about those ever being used, and nobody wants to see them being used. But it's a possibility. What do we do, folks? Well, besides pray, you got to make your voices heard. We all do. Talk to people in your circle of influence. Talk to people in government that you maybe feel like you don't have any influence over. You're just one person. That's true. But they're elected by people like you and me who pull the button or push the button or pull the switch, whatever it is in their voting booth, to choose who's going to serve us. And they all want to serve us so they wouldn't be in Washington or pushing to try to get there. Make your voice heard. Be very specific and brief and don't be snotty, but make your elected representatives in the United States Congress, both in the House and in the Senate, reach out to them if it's nothing more than an email. And if you don't get a response, send it again. And wait, if you don't get a response, send it again. You want to make sure that they hear you. And if you want to talk to them, I mean, you can get their numbers. It's pretty easy. Top of the show, we talked about where we stand today regarding our pandemic. Two years. Two years. And now, even two years later, the confusion, the contradictions, and the censorship that have plagued our unilateral overall response since the early days continues. It's not any better. January 24th, this year, just a few weeks ago, Senator Ron Johnson moderated a COVID-19, a second opinion. That's the name of this roundtable in D.C. And he did it to provide some different perspectives on the pandemic response worldwide. And he had the room full of some real experts on medicine. The state of early treatment, hospital treatment, and the efficacy of any and all of the COVID shots. He asked listeners to keep an open mind during a five hour, almost five hour panel discussion, which he pointed out wouldn't have been needed had the public been honestly informed during every step of the pandemic response. Now, we were informed in every step of it, but not honestly, and that is a factual statement. Now more and more information is coming out to verify that. Johnson said this, there's so much we don't know. I would have liked to see a much larger dose of modesty coming out of our federal health officials and the legacy media and big tech. We would be so much better off if there was a robust debate and discussion. That, however, did not happen. As an unprecedented assault on the freedom of speech and medical care took hold instead. Only one narrative has been allowed to be heard during the pandemic. Those who questioned it were discredited, ostracized, necessitating open meetings like this roundtable to talk about what went right, what went wrong, and where to go from here. Now, wouldn't, wouldn't this be something that you would think any president would want to instigate and have this happen on their watch? Think about it. Ron Johnson, he had this big meeting. The meeting room was full. We've actually played some snippets, some testimony from that uh, get-together roundtable with you over the past week or so. Wouldn't it have been wise for this president to put together a task force himself of some experts, not just yes men and women, 
that would automatically agree with anything he said, but real experts that would get up in front of the people that would be there and the television cameras and tell the truth, give their perspectives and give evidence to back up their perspectives. But that's not the way authoritarian governments operate. They force people to do whatever they want. And they don't try to justify the decisions in leadership that they give us by giving us facts or putting people that know the facts in front of us. They govern this way. This is what I say. This is the way it is. You can't question it. Only one narrative has been allowed to be heard during the pandemic. Just one. The panel that Senator Johnson had, it included an all-star lineup, some of the most brilliant minds in medicine. Nearly every one of them have experienced censorship, intimidation, and even professional reprisal and damages as a result of their advocacy. So if you can, go to truthnewsnet.org, go to today's story. It's the front page story. The title of it is COVID, two years and the experts still commit fraud on Americans. And scroll down, there's a YouTube video that's embedded in this story, and they talk about it. You can hear some of the testimony. It's definitely worth your time. So, who's at fault in all of this? Is it all Joe Biden? No, it's not all Joe. There's fraud at the FDA. There's fraud at the CDC from the very beginning. Working in tandem with scientific censorship, it's a modern-day witch hunt, targeting physicians who are treating COVID-19 early using some of those generic, low-cost medications and compounds like vitamin C. Meanwhile, rules and regulations about bioethics are being completely disregarded. Dr. Harvey Risch, he's a professor of epidemiology at Yale, folks, and you've seen him on many of these shows talking He is not inside the favor of this administration, but he is one of the most intellectual, knowing doctors regarding everything to do with infectious diseases. In this hearing, he brought up a warning by the FDA against the use of hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine to treat COVID outside of a hospital setting or during a clinical trial. And what they say when they wouldn't agree to do it, they being the FDA and CDC, you can't do it because of a risk of heart rhythm problems. However, they state that this is based on information from a trial in hospitalized patients. Now, that was their excuse, the FDA, for not approving hydroxychloroquine to be used by doctors outside of a hospital. Dr. Harvey Risch said this, as we know from two years of dealing with COVID, it's a completely different illness, treated with different drugs, different medications in the hospital. Outpatient disease is flu-like. Hospital disease is, and he paused, and then he said, a type of pneumonia. And so the fact that the FDA would base their recommendations and warnings on only the hospital disease side which is a totally different disease than outpatient disease. They're doing this as a fraud. They knew that. This website is still there today and constitutes an outright fraud. 
We found out through a bunch of different doctors that early treatment of COVID is critical, but that's being silenced by the so-called medical experts. Dr. Ryan Cole, he's the CEO and medical director of the laboratory Cole Diagnostics. In this roundtable, he used an example of one obese patient that he spoke with who had COVID. He told him to go to the pharmacy instead of the ER and prescribed him medications which shall not be named. Just six hours later, his lung pain was significantly better. By the next morning, his oxygen saturation had improved from 86% to 98%. The patient he then revealed is his brother, the doctor's brother, Dr. Ryan Cole, who may not be alive today had Cole not provided early treatment, treatment that's still being ignored by most U.S. physicians and most hospitals to this day. And then another doctor got up. We've had him on our show, Dr. Pierre Corey. He's a New York pulmonologist. An unapologetic champion of evidence-based medicine. In the town hall, he called attention to the corruption that's been ongoing throughout the pandemic. If you look at these innumerable failed policies, he said, there's only one way to understand them. They are literally written by pharmaceutical companies. Almost every single policy serves the interest of the pharmaceutical companies. However, if you look outside the U.S. and look around the world, there have been numerous successes outside of the hospitals. Dr. Corey notes there are multiple compounds that have been used successfully in early COVID-19 treatment. Nearly all of them are repurposed or generic. As one of the world's experts on ivermectin, let me just talk about some programs which use it, he said. While in the U.S., Ivermectin has been targeted as a horse dewormer that's only used by the ignorant or the anti-vaxxers. And this is Dr. Corey talking. He continued, that medication has been shown to literally solve the pandemic in numerous regions around the world. We don't hear about those success stories. I brought you one months ago about a study that happened at the very beginning in Indonesia And it was using ivermectin in some human trials. They were so successful that the Indonesian government gave ivermectin to every Indonesian citizen to use. And it almost depleted totally their pandemic. Dr. Richard Urso, an ophthalmologist in Houston, he's a member of America's Frontline Doctors. He explained that the situation got so bad with early treatment being denied that even though he's an ophthalmologist, he treated more than 1,600 patients for COVID-19 because they were languishing at home, no treatment for the inflammation, the respiratory distress, and blood clotting that these people were experiencing. It's absolutely absurd, he said, and I wasn't going to let it happen, even though it was common knowledge that those prescribing ivermectin and other drugs for this purpose We're getting fired around the nation. Dr. Mary Talley Bowden, an ear, nose, and throat ENT specialist from Houston, had similarly been treating patients for COVID after their primary care physicians refused to do. She estimated that using protocols like ivermectin, high-dose IV steroids, and vitamin C, she's kept more than 2,000 people out of the hospital. She got involved in a case with a sheriff's deputy who was hospitalized for COVID, 
His wife called her out of desperation because the hospital wasn't going to give him proper treatment. She sued the hospital. The wife did. Dr. Bowden testified, and they won. But the hospital refused to grant her privileges to treat the patient there, even though she says, I have a spotless record. I was furious. That's when it changed for me. She now has only one hospital where she feels she can send COVID patients to be treated correctly. As she recently filed a lawsuit against Houston, Houston Methodist Hospital, which was one of the first in the U.S. to mandate COVID shots for its workers. She's seeking the hospital's financial records over concerns that they're generating revenue from the COVID-19 shots that they've made mandatory. Another one, Dr. Harpel Mangad in Maryland, similarly treated over 1,000 COVID patients successfully using high-dose IV steroids and other options. He stated he's experienced the same resistance and backlash from the medical community, as has Bowden. Think about this roundtable for five hours with all these experts. And folks, they're not talking about this thing because, oh, it's me. I know so much more than everybody else. It had nothing to do with that. They work with people one-on-one. People that are really ill, really sick, as compared to Dr. Anthony Fauci, who doesn't treat patients. All of his expert recommendations come from reading or listening or talking to somebody. But obviously, every day we found out more and more, it's confirmed to us that his purpose behind all of it has a personal agenda. And that personal agenda is not about what's best for the patients, what's best to keep these patients from getting seriously ill and dying. We could give you story after story, example after example. Specifics. There's so much evil out there, so much taking advantage of people in the system. And I keep harking back to the scripture in Timothy. The love of money is the root of all evil. The love of money is the root of all evil. I come from a healthcare background, owning a healthcare reimbursement management company for 29 years. We work directly with healthcare providers of all ilks, little mom and pop physicians, outlets, emergency transportation systems, hospital, I mean directly with major hospitals and surgery centers, testing diagnostic centers for years and years and years. We look at the money. We see the money. That's what we're managing for these institutions and these physicians. And folks, the federal government, our federal government, is spending billions of dollars on things to do with COVID-19. The big receivers of that big money are the pharmaceutical companies like Pfizer and Moderna, Johnson & Johnson. All these shots that they're floating around, oh, it's free, it's free, it's free. They're not free. The federal government is paying these corporations tens of billions of dollars, these hospitals. Let me tell you how it works. Now, I'm not alleging that every hospital in the nation is doing what they're doing on their COVID protocols and treatment of patients. Not every one of them, but many of them are. Do you know that, have you heard what a fee schedule is in medicine? Fee schedule. 
What that means is the CMS, which is the government bureaucracy that basically runs Medicare and Medicaid. CMS stands for Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. They created a fee schedule, and it's constantly updated. Every, I mean every medical procedure that's going to be given to a human being by a physician, uh, even a uh, physician assistant in a hospital, outpatient, it doesn't matter what it is. If it's like a broken finger, it's got a code to treat it, the way to treat it. And it gets really specific if it's the left little pinky that's broken. And if it's broken above the first joint or below the first joint, it has a different code. That's how intricate it is. Well, insurance companies and Medicare and Medicaid are paid. It's called allowable for each of these procedures. When you conduct them, here's what Medicare and Medicaid is going to pay. And the physicians and the hospitals accept it. Now, that amount changes depending on the zip code in which that procedure is performed. Example, obviously, it costs more to do it, get an MRI in Manhattan than it does in Greensburg, Indiana. And so the fee payment for that MRI is higher in that case for those in New York. But it all washes out at the end of it all. Very surreptitiously, without any kind of major announcement, when COVID treatment came out and the federal government got involved, they created some new ICD-10 codes for these medical professionals to treat COVID-19 patients. And it gives the treaters, the doctors, the physicians, the clinics, it gives them some big, big, big bumps in what they're getting paid only when a patient is COVID-19 positive only when that patient is admitted to a hospital with the cause of the entry into the hospital, COVID-19, we're into the hospital protocols here, and they're pretty universal. They're set from the top, recommended by the CDC and the FDA. Here's how you treat COVID patients. And when you treat them, when you break it down and you give them this medication, well, if, they've, if they're being in the hospital for COVID-19, you're going to get this extra added money. It's They get more money every day paying for the rooms, paying for the advanced treatment that they get, paying for the medications. And they, they tell these in the protocols, when a person has a pulse ox that gets below this level, you've got to put them on a ventilator. If you put them on a ventilator, you get a big bump in payment. And then if they don't if they don't improve, you've got to give them rendisivir, a very expensive new Moderna IV medicine to treat COVID-19. Comes with some horrible adverse reactions that we've talked about here, but you get big money there. If the patient dies and the official cause of death is COVID-19, the hospital and the provider get another big bump in dollars. Now, I'm pointing that out just to say this. I'm not accusing anybody of anything. But if it quacks and waddles, it's pretty much always a duck. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Follow the money. Follow the money. We're going to take a break. When we come back, I'm going to give you a specific story about a patient, a girl, 
entered the hospital, COVID-19, and I'm going to give you the specifics of her treatment in this hospital, and the treatment caused her death. Specifics, folks. Specifics. Not conspiracy theory. It's happening, and it happened to her. That's next. Beat Yourself Up Hotline. Is this the Beat Yourself Up Hotline? Yes, sir. If you'd like to beat yourself up, this is the place to do it. Okay, I'd like to beat myself up now, please. Go right ahead when you're comfortable. I am so stupid. I can't believe how stupid I am. What an idiot. I left all my holiday shipping until the last minute again. Now it's a huge hassle. Why do I have to do this to myself every year? When, oh, when will I learn? You beat yourself up very well, sir. Thanks. But maybe you should just log on to SmartShip.com. SmartShip.com? Right. Type in your zip code and SmartShip.com tells you the fastest, easiest, most affordable way to do your holiday shipping, even at the last minute. Wow. SmartShip.com. Mm-hmm. Why didn't I think of that? Well... Why do I have to have somebody else tell me what to do? Oh, sir... When, oh, when will I ever have an original thought? You're really good at this, sir. I've been told it's a gift. SmartShip.com. The way smart shipping is done. Those in the know like to stay in the realm of innovation. Join them. It's easy to keep up with the latest trends and own the latest tech with BMW Select as it offers you the option to drive a brand new BMW every three years. You also get to tailor your deal to suit your pocket and your lifestyle. Visit select.bmw.co.za for more. BMW Select. Dynamic finance for ultimate control. BMW Financial Services is an authorized FSP and registered credit provider. T's and C's apply. Drinking water is essential to your health. That's why you need to drink plenty of water to keep you hydrated throughout the day. Unlike power drinks or soft drinks, water is truly the only drink that can quench your thirst. It's an easy, refreshing way to keep your body healthy and strong. Freshen up today with a brisk, cool bottle of water. You're separating truth from scare tactics, freedom from fascism, and your warrior on point, again, Dan Newman. Well, here we are, folks. Valentine's Day, 2022. Wedding anniversary 47 for Marianne and Dan Newman. Early in the show, beginning of the show, I um, I told you what's going on here. Who it, You know, you don't have to be just getting married uh, having got married on Valentine's Day, you guys, you girls, you've got a Valentine. If you've been married, make sure you make that uh, spouse, that partner comfortable in understanding and accepting and believing in your devotion to them. It's an important time in our life. And if we get bogged down and looking around and seeing all the negative stuff that's happening, and we just concentrate on it, you can get in a really bad space mentally and emotionally. Don't go there. But encourage other people. So let me tell you about Grace Shara. On Grace's last day on earth, she had been given a combination of a sedative, an anxiety medication, and morphine. Leading up to her time of death, which is 7.27 p.m. on October 13th, 2021, in the hospital 
in Appleton, Wisconsin. With an armed guard standing near the doorway of her room at St. Elizabeth Hospital, Jessica, Grace's sister and her patient legal patient advocate, screamed at nurses she saw standing in the hallway, begging them to help Grace. Grace, her sister, had been admitted to the hospital October 6th after she tested positive for COVID-19 on October 1. Grace felt cold after the 6.15 p.m. morphine injection. She attempted to get a nurse's help and was told this was normal. Jessica FaceTimed her parents, Scott and Cindy, at 7.20 p.m. They both joined Jessica in her pleas. There was nothing to be done, a nurse said, because Grace had been coded as do not resuscitate or a DNR order. Scott and Cindy yelled, she wasn't DNR. Save our daughter, they cried. So in the middle of back and forth shouting, Scott and Cindy, her mom and dad, watched their 19-year-old daughter die on FaceTime at 7.27 p.m. that day. I wake up a couple of nights a week and think, why didn't I do this? Why didn't I do that? Scott said that, the dad. We didn't. Why didn't I get her out of that hospital? All of these things I still play in my mind. And Scott hasn't stopped asking questions. He referenced a package insert for the morphine injection. The insert states that the opiate, morphine, should not be used in combination with benzodiapines, which is lorazepam, you've probably heard of it, or other depressants, Presidex, both of which Scott said Grace had been given periodically. It says right in the insert, this may result in profound sedation, respiratory depression, coma, and even death, he said. Then it says to have a naloxone injection available to resuscitate, but with all the nurses in the hallway, no one even tried this. Why did they ignore these warnings? For Scott and his family, Grace's time in the hospital was riddled with problems that aren't unlike the hospital experiences many others have reported that we've given you a bunch of different case details over the last couple of years. From the very beginning, Scott said his daughter Grace's status as an unvaccinated patient was the subject of scorn. And Scott reported medical staff to be critical of the family for following the medical advice of America's frontline doctors. That organization... They support the use of early treatment protocols like ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, vitamin C and D, and zinc. Though family members haven't been allowed to be in the hospitals with their loved ones since COVID began, both Scott and Jessica were permitted and were made patient advocates legally through the American Disabilities Act. Why? Grace had Down syndrome. Though Scott said hospital staff initially resisted this, there being her legal patient advocates. While staying at the hospital, Scott was virtually guaranteed he would test positive for COVID-19. And guess what? That happened on October 7th. He was eventually kicked out of the hospital for turning off the alarms that went off in Grace's room at night so she could sleep. After Scott said he had asked the staff several times to make them sound off only at the nurse's station. 
He was also told the prior three shifts of nurses didn't want him in the room. When the armed guard escorted him out, Scott said the guard told him he needs to report to the higher-ups at the hospital what was happening to his daughter. This wouldn't be the last time a hospital staff member would indicate to the family that what the hospital was doing wasn't right. There were several circumstances Scott talked about in his report in which he said hospital staff were arbitrarily recording Grace's oxygen levels lower than what they were. Why? To justify the continued use of a ventilator. They get paid more. I'm serious. They get paid more if the patient's on a ventilator. In one of these situations, Scott said a doctor was using faulty data recorded at 11.30 p.m. the night prior after an incident that put Grace's blood pressure at 235 over 135 with a heart rate at 150 beats per minute. When I insisted they retake the blood numbers, Grace was fine, and at no time did she need a ventilator, he said. When Scott and Cindy were asked four additional times about Grace potentially needing a vent, the, re- the request was couched in the explanation that these things tend to happen in the middle of the night when we can't get a hold of the family. Now, why would that be? Pulse Ox stays fine until their family leaves the room? Come on now. So they wanted to have us make a preemptive decision so then they could decide whenever they wanted to put Grace on the ventilator. That's significant because this is what they do. They want this decision by the family to be in their back pocket. Scott said it's also significant because since COVID, families haven't been in the hospitals to witness any inconsistencies. Because of this time as an advocate, he said, he was able to investigate and find that the arbitrarily low oxygen readings were based on consistently faulty equipment and staff not fixing the equipment in a timely manner. If I hadn't been there, as many families aren't able to do, they would have just put her on a vent, which itself, in many cases, is a death sentence. The morning of Grace's last day, Jessica, her sister, wanted to take a shower, but the nurse told her she had to shower at home. This is unusual, Scott said, the dad, because when Scott was an advocate, he was told he could not leave the hospital, then return to prevent the risk of leaving with and bringing in COVID-19. So why did they have a different set of rules for her that day than they did for me? While Jessica was gone for about an hour, Scott said hospital staff strapped Grace into the bed because staff later told Jessica that Grace had wanted to use the bathroom because no underlying reason was given for their restraining Grace other than for her safety. Scott said he can only speculate that it was because of Grace's Down syndrome Though, as Scott pointed out, Grace was high-functioning. Would they have done that to you or me if we were a patient? When Jessica came back to the hospital, she found her sister's health had declined dramatically. Scott said he later discovered that the staff increased the level of sedation. Cindy reported that a nurse helping the family take Grace's belongings out to their truck, told Cindy that she and some other nurses didn't believe Grace should have died. According to Wisconsin state statute, Grace's health care agent, which was her mother, Cindy, must consent to 
and sign any DNR order, do not resuscitate, which Scott said never took place. State statute also requires a DNR bracelet to be placed on the patient. It was never on grace. In addition, state statute gives DNR revocation authority to the healthcare agent. When we yelled, she's not a DNR, please help our little girl, and the nursing staff stood there saying she's DNR, that was the final violation that resulted in her death. We were giving them direction to resuscitate the patient, and they didn't. Grace's cause of death, according to the death certificate, is acute respiratory failure with hypoxema as a consequence of COVID pneumonia. However, Scott argues that the respiratory failure was caused by the combination of the drugs. Though legal means, through legal means, Scott says he's trying to get the cause of death changed to gross negligence. In a 14-page report sent to the hospital, Scott details the events leading up to her death he alleges was one incident of negligence after the other. He gives those details to people who connect with him on the website. You might want to write this down, www.ouramazinggrace.net. He highlights moments from her life and provides support and networking for people who have had the same experience. Now what about Scott? COVID-19, right? He later checked into St. Vincent Hospital in Green Bay, where he said he had a completely different experience, despite being in worse condition than was Grace. He said they put him on vitamins and supplements instead of sedatives and anxiety medications with the daily nebulizer treatment. They never pushed for a ventilator or remdesivir, he said. I truly believe that if Grace had come to this hospital, she would be alive today. I, I felt it was critical for you to hear these two specific stories, not the, oh me, or the, oh, how sorry. It's not about that, folks. Let me tell you why I'm doing this. You know, I'm not a patient advocate of any kind. I'm a truth seeker. I have looked at this personally, just like you have, for two, more than two years actually now. And I've been objective. I've also been personally involved. My wife, Marianne, 47 years today we've been married. Marianne got a really bad case of COVID back, uh, I guess, in July, uh, right after, I guess, six months after COVID came to the U.S. She never gets sick with anything. But it, it really it knocked her on, her on her rear. I mean, she got sick. And I watched that. But instead of, in the very early stages, going through the treatment that the hospitals were telling us, we reached out to our personal physician, and he said, look, hydroxychloroquine is working. We couldn't get it. The first prescription that we were given, our pharmacy, who had been our pharmacy for years, they wouldn't fill the the prescription. We found some, and he treated her She had pneumonia, I mean real pneumonia, bad pneumonia. He treated her with um, vitamin C, a nebulizer, um, hydromectin. No, not hydromectin, hydroxychloroquine. I'm trying to think of what else he did. And literally, folks, in three days, 
she was up and at him. We could give you story after story after story like this, and sadly story after story like what you heard about Grace. And I'm pretty, I'm pretty certain that over the next few years, we're going to find out the real reasons for the way the government has handled this pandemic. And when I say government, I'm speaking specifically about Centers for Disease Control, the National Institutes of Health, the FDA, and the medical bureaucracy in the nation that has been driven to make decisions for people, make choices, life and death choices for people based upon chiefly dollars and cents. I'm not excited to even intimate that could even be a possibility, but I think we're beyond that. I think that in large part, not every part, but in large part, that's what has been happening and is happening today. The problem you and I have, Scott, his baby girl, she got treated poorly outside of any of the stability things that were recommended by real science in one hospital, and those decisions killed her. He goes to another hospital with a totally different set of protocols that really rely on true science rather than Fauci science. And he had a great experience and was well in a short period of time. How many other stories like that are there here in America? And sadly, folks, do you realize that overseas, especially in Europe and Asia, COVID patients there are being treated and are getting healed with the same COVID-19 treatment protocols that we've known about from the very beginning, but our experts have poo-pod them and basically made, in some cases, it illegal. It's illegal for any person in the United States to resort to those. And many, many, many people have died because of that. It's got to stop. It's got to stop. Have you ever wanted to learn a new language like French, Spanish, or Russian, but thought it would be too difficult and time-consuming? Then go to Babbel.com and try it for free. Babbel works because it's built around real life. It teaches you everyday practical conversations that you will actually use. In 15 minutes a day, you'll be on your way to speaking a new language in just a few weeks. Babbel uses a modern conversation-based technique that makes language engaging, fun, and memorable. It starts by teaching you words and phrases. Then, sentences gradually get more complex. Soon, you're practicing short conversations about real-life topics. Babbel is created by language experts who use the space repetition method to help you learn quickly and remember what you learned. With Babbel, you can speak a new language. Babbel, language for life. Celebrating 10 million subscriptions sold. Now try Babbel for free at Babbel.com. Just go to Babbel.com and start learning a new language today. That's Babbel.com. B-A-B-B-E-L.com. Welcome to Burger King. Can I take your order, please? I'm here for the most wanted. Sorry, sir. Can you repeat that? The gang known as the Western Whopper. Ah, you mean our new Texas barbecue beef bacon and sweet Carolina Whoppers, right? Yes, I need them now. Try the new Texas barbecue beef bacon or our tasty honey mustard sauce on our sweet Carolina Whoppers at your nearest BK today. Burger King, have it your way. Lowe's knows you're a craftsman guy. You have a lot of tools. 
tools for everything you've done around the house. But there's the moment you realize your new project means new tools. When tool guys need new tools, they start with Lowe's. The new home of Craftsman. While some compromise to be nice, others aggressively hold to the truth. Guess which one we are. TNN, the Truth News Network. Just want to add something. Um, I don't. I don't know exactly how many people. SoFi Stadium, the site of the Super Bowl yesterday in Los Angeles. I don't know what the capacity is, but. Um, folks that were there and folks that were looking around the arena inside during the game. And we're talking about Los Angeles. We're talking about elites, Hollywood. We're talking about all that and the people there, the ones that have been screaming and hollering, uh, I guess, from the beginning of all of this, you've got to lock down. You've got to wear a mask. You've got to get vaccinated. You can't get in crowds. You've got to wear a mask, got to wear a mask. Los Angeles kids, California kids going to school today. They got to wear a mask still. It's estimated that less than 5% of the people in SoFi Stadium in Los Angeles, many of them were elitist, people that are on the left, outwardly uh, Democrat, leftist, less than 5% were wearing masks. And I mean, they called Donald Trump rallies. Remember those MAGA rallies? Super spreaders, super spreaders. Where would be a more suitable super spreader than 60, 70, 80,000 fans sitting cheek to cheek, literally, in an enclosed arena, which is what SoFi Stadium is? Seemed like nobody was concerned there. So I told you at the top of the show, I wanted to let you hear from Paul Harvey, a great commentator somebody that for years and years and years had two different segments that he he put out nationally in a network setting one was the rest of the story that one was uh it was live every day by abc radio during the noon hour in central time zone in the united states it was one o'clock back east and then he had another one that was run pretty much in the morning and it would be a commentary about his thoughts and feelings about very appropriate things happening in the nation at that particular time. Now, Paul Harvey hadn't been around in a long time. He died. But I dug up something yesterday that I thought was applicable for today in many, many ways. So I'm not going to go into any details. I'm going to let him do that. Paul Harvey, if I were the devil. If I were the devil... If I were the devil, if I were the prince of darkness, I'd want to engulf the whole world in darkness, and I'd have a third of its real estate and four-fifths of its population, but I wouldn't be happy until I had seized the ripest apple on the tree, the. So I'd set about however necessary to take over the United States. I'd subvert the churches first. I'd begin with a campaign of whispers. With the wisdom of a serpent, I would whisper to you as I whispered to Eve. Do as you please. To the young, I would whisper that the Bible is a myth. I would convince them that man created God instead of the other way around. I would confide that what's bad is good and what's good is 
square, and the old I would teach to pray after me, our Father, which art in Washington. And then I'd get organized. I'd educate authors in how to make lurid literature exciting so that anything else would appear dull and uninteresting. I'd threaten TV with dirtier movies, and vice versa. I'd peddle narcotics to whom I could. I'd sell alcohol to ladies and gentlemen of distinction. I'd tranquilize the rest with pills. If I were the devil, I'd soon have families at war with themselves, churches at war with themselves, and nations at war with themselves, until each in its turn was consumed. And with promises of higher ratings, I'd have mesmerizing media fanning the flames. If I were the devil, I would encourage schools to refine young intellects, but neglect to discipline emotions, just let those run wild. Until before you knew it, you'd have to have drug-sniffing dogs and metal detectors at every schoolhouse door. Within a decade, I'd have prisons overflowing, I'd have judges promoting pornography, Soon I could evict God from the courthouse, then from the schoolhouse, and then from the houses of Congress. And in his own churches I would substitute psychology for religion and deify science. I would lure priests and pastors into misusing boys and girls and church money. If I were the devil, I'd make the symbol of Easter an egg and the symbol of Christmas a bottle. If I were the devil, I'd take from those who have and give to those who wanted until I had killed the incentive of the ambitious. And what'll you bet? I couldn't get whole states to promote gambling as the way to get rich. I would caution against extremes in hard work, in patriotism, in moral conduct. I would convince the young that marriage is old-fashioned, that swinging is more fun, that what you see on TV is the way to be. And thus I could undress you in public and I could lure you into bed with diseases for which there is no cure. In other words, if I were the devil, I'd just keep right on doing what he's doing. You need to remember that. You need to remember what Paul Harvey just said. He talked about everything, everything that we're dealing with in our lives today. I'm not just talking about politics. I'm talking about church. I'm talking about schools. I'm talking about morals and immorality. You know when he, when he penned that and aired it? 1965. 1965. You think he... Um, he nailed it. You think he was objective being able to look at the landscape of the nation, the American people, our government, and everybody who's not in government, in medicine? <laughs> what a wise man he was. We miss giants like that. We don't have any more like that. I'm just saying. I'm pretty sure we don't. Hey, we left what's going on in Ukraine till the end of the show today, and the reason we did it was on purpose. I um, had a conversation over the weekend with a very, very connected gentleman who um, is from Asia. He's now living in another part of the world. Very wealthy man, very knowledgeable about everything to do in politics and financial things in um military happenings around the world, the U.S., and especially in Europe and Asia. 
And he made some very interesting remarks to me about what's going on as it looks pretty evident that Russia is about to invade Ukraine. But there are a lot of different little pieces of it that we're being told or we're hearing on the news, not necessarily being told about, but we're not hearing anything in it. Is, as an example, Vladimir Putin going to invade Ukraine? And if he is, why? That's a big question nobody's answering. Nobody's giving us, well, why would he do that? Why would he do it? Well, he went in one time before and took a piece of Ukraine, Crimea. He took that. This is just him following up on it. There are a lot of internal and political reasons that we are not privy to. But there are people that are privy to them. And I'm not pointing any conspiratorial finger at anybody or about anything. But you need to watch closely over the next few days and weeks at exactly what happens there and how the U.S. is involved in what is happening there. As a prime example, this came out overnight. The Department of Defense uh, confirmed that some of our U.S. troops that have been over there, they're already leaving Ukraine, folks. Secretary of Defense has ordered the temporary repositioning of some of those troops out of Ukraine. That came from Pentagon Press Secretary Admiral John Kirby. Why did they do that? Well, the move was ordered to protect the safety and security of U.S. personnel. But the United States is still committed to our relationship with Ukrainian armed forces, he elaborated. So I I don't get it. We're going to protect our troops. We sent them over there. If we were going to pull them out to protect them, why'd we send them over there? It's unclear how many of these military members are being relocated. Some media outlets reported that 160 members of the Florida National Guard are withdrawing from Ukraine. And I've tried to verify any other numbers or get some other explanations myself. Exhaustive research, I can't find any reason, explanation for it. The Pentagon is moving more troops into Eastern Europe, we're told, to deal with the potential invasion of Ukraine by Russia. The Pentagon tells us again that today, this morning, it could happen any time now. About 1,700 paratroopers from the 82nd Airborne Division are arriving in Poland. We are told they're getting there today and tomorrow. At the invitation of our Polish allies, 1,700 troops from the division continue to arrive in Poland following a Department of Defense announcement earlier directing the deployment of U.S. soldiers to Europe. The unit is deploying to enhance our readiness, our strength, and our resilience, and if necessary, defend and secure the NATO alliance. NATO. One senior administration official confirmed yesterday an additional 3,000 troops have been deployed to Poland. It's unclear if the 1,700 paratroopers are part of that. So beside the paratroopers, defense also announced that a squadron from the 2nd Cavalry Regiment under the command and control of V-Corps will deploy from Vilsek, Germany to Romania. So it's unclear how many soldiers that squadron has. The 2nd Cavalry Regiment has 5,000 Dragon soldiers in total in seven subordinate squadrons. This squadron will join the 900 U.S. soldiers already there on a regularly scheduled Atlantic Resolve rotation. So here's the thing, folks. How much 
is this the United States on its own really reaching in to support Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky? I can't even, he's got a funny first name. Anyway, you know, the president of Ukraine. How much is that? How much is, quote unquote, reinforcing NATO? And remember, Russia's not a member of NATO. Ukraine's not a member of NATO. And this heavyweight gentleman that I spoke to, he weighed in on that very thing. Watch closely and get as much information as you can about NATO as it pertains to what's happening in Russia and Ukraine right now. What have we always told you here? If you ever have a question about why, follow the money. Follow the money. Hey, folks, that's the end of Valentine's Day here at TNN Live. Thank you for being here. want to invite you back tomorrow. We're going to be back in Nashville. We may have a special guest or two, so you might want to listen in. You know, lots of entertainment dollars here, country and otherwise. Have a great day. Remember, God loves you, and the best is yet to come. Make it a good one, folks.